Welcome to the Fiat Podcast. Sharing powerful birth stories within a Catholic context. I am Nikki French. And I'm Laura Flaherty. Let's get started. In today's episode, Kirsten outlines a traumatic birth exacerbated by a history of sexual abuse and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we are here with Kirsten. Welcome, Kirsten. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. So I am 25 years old. I am currently mother of one, expecting number two. I am married. Congratulations. To- Thank you. <laughs> um, and I am married to Benjamin, who I met shortly after college, and we got married in 2019. That's great. All right. Well, we uh, are going to start with the Hail Mary, and then we'll jump right into your story. Awesome. So we'll begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, yes, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the end hour of our death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So yeah, mm-hmm. Kirsten, wherever you'd like to start, take it away. Sure. Um, so like I shared, um, Ben and I got married the summer of 2019. Um, as we were planning for our wedding, we were, we took an NFP course and I had been studying NFP a little bit on my own for several years, um, before I'd even met Ben. And, um, I remember as we were taking the class and, um, we were talking about the fact that you would, you know, as a couple discern if you need to avoid for a time, or Mm -hmm. is this a time that we're actively trying to conceive you know, and different things like that. And I remember asking him just as a conversational dialogue, what reasons come to mind that might be like, Hey, this might be something that um, would be caused to need to avoid. Like, is there anything on your heart? Not necessarily in this moment, but just hypothetically. Mm -hmm. And he thought about it and you should know that Ben is a very pensive person. He's very thoughtful. He's very deliberative. So when he comes with an answer, I know it's, it's very intentional. (laughs) And he said, well, I don't know how we're going to have 12 kids if we're avoiding pregnancy all the time. (laughs) And that was the first moment that I was like confident he was serious about actually having a large family because we'd kind of talked about it before, but that was the first moment that was like, for sure, for sure. And um, it was fun. We told that story of just that little conversation to a lot of our friends and family And actually, it came up, our pastor shared it as a part of the homily during the wedding. Um, (laughs) So even if you missed it, like you definitely got it if you were at the wedding. Um, So it really wasn't surprising that pretty early on in our marriage, we had intentions to start um, growing a family. The only reason we waited the first two months was because I didn't have an insurance plan set up yet. And I wanted to make sure we were completely covered. But as soon as we were able to switch that over and get all connected correctly so that we would be covered and everything, we did start trying to conceive. And I was scared. Like, I wanted a family and I liked the idea of having children, but I was so terrified of actually being pregnant. Mm. And one of the reasons for that is because um, part of my life story 
is that um, I've actually been through several years of sexual abuse, which started when I was just turning 14 years old and went on until I became an adult. So I spent the better part of my fertile years worried that I was pregnant. Yeah. And every single time my menses would come, I would be relieved that I was not in fact pregnant. Even though contraception was being used at that time, there was still a tremendous amount of fear mm-hmm. of what would come of that situation. I genuinely to this day don't know what my abuser would have asked of me in that circumstance. Right. And I'm very grateful that I was never asked to find out. Um, so making that transition to genuinely being excited was, it was more layered and complicated than you might otherwise think. Right. So, um, I remember the first cycle we tried, we did not conceive and I, um, was so disappointed when, um, when my period came, I was like just super, super sad. And I was looking at my husband that day and I was super upset about it. And I said, I guess now I know that I really do want to have a baby. (laughs) Cause I did actually feel that disappointment. Um, and so cycle, we were actually like gung ho, like, okay, like I'm actually a hundred percent in this as opposed to just tentatively like on board. Right. And um, I'd originally promised him that I said, I don't want to look at a false negative. So I'm going to wait until a week after I'm expecting my period before I take a positive test. Right. And he was like, okay, that's fine. And that month I was um, literally standing in Walmart about two or three days past when we were expecting my, um, my flow to start. And um, I thought I felt like that little feeling that you get like, Oh gosh, I think I need to go to the restroom and get a pad or a tampon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was so mad. Like I stomped into the restroom, like <laughs> super grumpy. Like, how dare you? I wanted this baby. And there was nothing there. And I was like, I got all worked up about it and there wasn't mm-hmm. anything, like maybe a little mucus, like it was nothing. So I was like, Oh, what the heck? So I texted Ben and I was like, we have to test tomorrow. <laughs> like, I can't <laughs> keep waiting. <laughs> this is crazy. So um, he said, yeah, of course, honey. Like, whatever you think is right. Like, we can do it tonight if you want. And I said, well, everybody says you're supposed to do it in the morning. So I guess I'll wait till morning. And he said, okay, that's fine. He's so good. Like, he's so gentle. Um, And so we obviously tested the next morning. And um, I it was funny because... I had read the instructions that said you need to wait three minutes before you can be confident of the result. Mm -hmm. And so I had gone to take the test and there was actually a tiny amount of blood on the um, tissue when I was done. And I was like, we're wasting a test. Like, this is dumb. I'm not even going to look at it. Like, I already know it's negative. And I'm standing in the kitchen waiting my three minutes while it's sitting on the bathroom counter and my husband's just looking at me so confused what are you doing why are we waiting I don't understand so the three minutes are up and I'm like okay fine I'll go and look and I was dumbfounded that it was positive because I you know was just convinced that it would be negative because I just had this little spot of blood 
And he apparently had known the whole time, the whole three minutes that I was waiting <laughs> because it had shown positive that quickly. Right, right. And he'd been like, why are we waiting? But okay. <laughs> so we had this like super awkward moment in the kitchen where we're like, you knew? Yeah, I knew. I was wrong. Wait, what? And it was kind of weird. But um, that's how we found out we were pregnant. Uh, we did it together. And then um, my pregnancy went on fairly normally. I had a lot of morning sickness at the beginning. So I ended up telling people like my boss a lot sooner than I normally would have considered just mm -hmm. because it was, it was genuinely debilitating and for several weeks I was not able to really function in my regular life mm -hmm. um and I finally went to this OB that I was seeing and said I there has to be another solution like I, I can't keep this up I had tried everything that they put say you know um suck on ginger uh, you know, um, pops or take these pregnancy pops or, you know, lemon or peppermint oil or all these different things. And none of them worked for me. And so um, he finally said, we'll try taking over the counter Unisom and vitamin B6 before you go to bed. And I was like, okay, I'll try anything. And it was like a miracle. Like I woke up the next day feeling human. And wow. I was like, 11 weeks along and I'd been suffering for like four or five weeks at that point. So I was massively relieved and it became like a weird dependency because one time we skipped it thinking that it had been enough weeks and everything would be fine. And the day was just terrible. So it was an absolute relief. Um, besides that though, the pregnancy was super normal. All the checks were super um, ordinary. Um, but the fun, crazy thing that happened during this pregnancy is that COVID happened. We uh, were just approaching, um, just entering into the second trimester when um, all of the COVID craziness came into the United States. And um, I hadn't even told most of the people at work. I'd pretty much only told my boss and my supervisor. And um, that was it. And Ironically, what ended up happening is um, we had to let about 95% of our staff go and they all left not knowing I was pregnant. And so then some of them found me in the months that followed, like after the baby was born, like, wait, you have a whole baby over here. Like, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, just because the timing was just so, um, so weird with all of that. Um, but so also around that time, the OB that I was seeing had said that he only delivers babies or he doesn't deliver babies, but he partners with, um, a university hospital that, um, is nearby. And I, when I met with him had thought that he partnered with the local Catholic hospital. And so when I met with him, I realized I was mistaken. And so I had been discerning whether or not I was going to switch to a different provider. And he had said that he would only carry, continue providing for me over the first trimester if I planned to deliver someplace else. So um, in the midst of all of that craziness, I was um, worried about my job, worried about my husband's job, um, worried about 95 people who rely on me for a job and trying to figure out what the heck to do about finding a new provider for our baby and this pregnancy. So um, 
I reached out to a couple of different groups of ladies that I'd met online, just asking for guidance and recommendations, because at this point I really wanted to find like the right one and not have to jump through a lot of hoops. And I got a lot of positive feedback about the midwifery model of care. And so I had asked the OB if he had any recommendations or could refer me to any local midwives. And fortunately, there was a group um, very nearby to where I'd been going to see him who um, was a group of midwives and had um, a relationship with the hospital, the Catholic hospital that I was hoping to work with. So I was very excited. I did my research, read the reviews and had nothing but positive things to see. So I said, okay, I'll give that a try. And that's actually who cared for me throughout the rest of my pregnancy. So team of midwives, there's about 15 of them. Um, so just rotating through different ones, hoping to meet everyone or as many as I could um, prior to delivering so that I would be a little bit more familiar. I was nervous at the idea of going into the hospital in labor and not knowing the person who was going to be there taking mm -hmm. care of me. Mm -hmm. um, so... I had really wanted to have a doula and my therapist had actually is the one who suggested it to me and I had read about it and I had never heard of what a doula was until she suggested it. And I said, wow, the idea of having somebody who is exclusively there for me, like they're not split between other patients, you know, or anything like that, like the mm -hmm. nurses and midwives or OBs would be, they're just mm -hmm. there for me. And their entire function is just to support me in every way possible. And I thought that sounded lovely. And so originally they said, you can't have anybody with you, just one support person. And I definitely could not imagine going in without my husband. Right. This is all because of um, the pandemic. And so we didn't pursue finding a doula because we didn't think we could have one. And as the pregnancy progressed, I started dealing with a lot more um, anxieties and worries about labor and delivery. And I shared a lot of that with my midwives. And um, they let me know as soon as the ruling switched that we could have two support people during labor instead of just one. And I was really excited. Okay, yay, I can have my doula. And I was already in my third trimester, which is kind of late to the game to be finding a doula. Um, but we found one. She was wonderful. Um, her name was Josie. And um, so we met with her a few times before going into labor. And she really helped me to um, get a good idea of what labor and delivery were going to be like. And to really just walk me through the choices that might be presented to me. I had had the opportunity to read a book, which I highly recommend, um, especially for Catholic moms, which is called... Um, Oh goodness, what is it called? Um, made it for this. Made for this. It's called made for this. Yeah, yeah, I love that book. It's such a good book. It really just talks about the fact that God, in His incredible design, designed women to carry and deliver babies in a safe and natural way, and just found it very empowering, especially with as a as a mom with PTSD and you know multi level history with different trauma scenarios, especially as it pertains to my physical body, I was just very nervous going into labor and delivery. So having that as sort of a positive, empowering, like groundwork mm -hmm. was very helpful. And it helps me find out the types of things they would ask me 
um, at the hospital, what um, medical procedures they might recommend. Um, they covered a lot of that in there. And then I was able to talk about it with my doula. And she had this interesting exercise where she had these little cards and on each side of the card were two different um, of your of your choices for a given um, like medical procedure. So do you want an episiotomy or not? Or do you want a vaginal birth or a C-section? Like these are the types of things that were on the cards. <clears throat> and so we had gone through and she said, go ahead and flip the cards of what would be your preference, you know, uh, flipped so they're facing up. And, you know, we'd done this exercise and then she'd kind of said, okay, what if um, I told you that five of those decisions had to be flipped the other way? Which decisions would you flip? Which would you most comfortable flipping? And then a third, a second time, she said, okay, now what if I took another five or 10 of them away or something like that? And um, that exercise ended up being really, really critical for our labor and delivery experience. Because there was one card that had the same thing written on both sides. And it said, a healthy baby. And that was key because it didn't matter which way you flip the card, the end goal is a healthy baby. That's what everybody wants. And all of these other things are choices that we would prefer, but there's a possibility because of medical complications that maybe that might not be what happens. And so it was very important that we went through that exercise because it helped me know what I wanted and develop my birth plan, but also have a reasonable expectation in my mind that only so much of this labor and delivery was going to be up to me and some of it was going to be up to my baby. So going in to um, the end of my pregnancy, at 37 um, weeks, I went, um, had this crazy dental experience that I won't get into. It's a, it's a good story, though. You should ask me about it sometime. <laughs> um, but long story short, I ended up having to get um, dental work at the last minute, right before my recommended, um, uh, what is the word? Um, solitude or what have you prior to um, the delivery. They had said two weeks before your due date. Quarantine. Quarantine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. Um, so it was right before quarantine started, I had to get this emergency dental work. And the dentist was so worried about my feet. She's like, oh, you're so swollen. Have you talked to your OB? That's so worrisome. You could have preeclampsia. This is so bad. She was very worried. And I kind of thought it was a bunch of like fish posh because I knew a lot of other pregnant women who had swollen feet and I figured it was just kind of normal. But um, I was like, all right, just for peace of mind, I had been alternating my appointments between in the office and then virtual. So I said, well, for peace of mind, I'll just go to the little pharmacy up the road and I'll get a blood pressure reading. And just so that I can say, see, it's fine. It's normal. And it wasn't. It was high. I actually did it twice and got high readings both times. So when I got on my virtual appointment, again, this is 37 weeks, my um, midwife pretty promptly says, those numbers are very high. They're very concerning for 37 weeks. She walked me through a couple of possible other symptoms. And I didn't have a lot of the other ones on the list that were really concerning, like a headache that wouldn't go away or something like that. 
but she was still concerned. And she said, Kirsten, and I would like you to go to the hospital for triage just to get checked out, which really surprised me because again, I, I went to get my blood pressure checked just because I was going to check the box if everything's fine. So I wasn't expecting such a drastic response, but we said, okay, you know, that's fine. And we had half a hospital bag packed, but you know, that's what we had. So we grabbed it and off we went. And, um, fortunately, um, my blood pressure did, it read high the first time when I first arrived, but after that it went down almost immediately. So we ended up not needing to have the baby, um, you know, or do anything else, but they were like, now we're kind of a little bit more cautious. And at this point we want to see you in person for every visit just to be sure. And I said, okay. And we ended up being in the hospital that day for about six or eight hours. And I was so hungry by the time I left because I didn't have any food. Um, they offered me snacks a couple of times, but that's not the same thing as a full meal. Right. Um, so we went home and all was fine. And we started our quarantine. And, um, you know, I went to my 38 week appointment. And at that point, I had my birth plan. We went over it with the midwife that day. And she said, oh, yes this is wonderful. It looks beautiful. It's easy to read. And also I just want you to know that as she, we went through every single decision, every note that I'd made. And she said, these are all of our defaults. So I just want to encourage you in that regard. Of course, we read your birth plan. Of course, we give preference to that, but also just wanting to let you know that, um, you know, we will, these are all the things we would normally do by default. You know, we, we'd try to avoid all of the on medical interventions if it wherever possible. So this is great. And I was like, oh, wonderful. And basically to summarize it, I was hoping for as natural of a birth as you can get in a hospital setting. So they don't let you have a water birth there, but you know, to be able to walk around and, you know, try different techniques to ease my um, pain and make it more comfortable um, that didn't involve medication or anything like that. Um, you know, so I was hoping to avoid a epidural. I was hoping to have, you know, my water break on its own and all of those different things to just naturally have the baby on the baby's own timeline. That was my goal. And she had gone through it all with me and said, yep, this all looks totally, you know, doable. <clears throat> and so I'd gone home that day going, oh, this is wonderful. You know, lots of positive feelings. And we went back to continue our Netflix binging. Because really, what what is there to do when you're stuck at home for two to four weeks <laughs> waiting for a baby? Um, so we went home, and then the following week, um, we had scheduled my appointment specifically for a Tuesday because um, Panera has their baker's dozen on sale on Tuesdays. <laughs> and <laughs> we were going to go out of the house once, then I was going to get it all done in one day. Um, and so we had stopped on the way to get to the midwives to pick up our Panera order. And of course, this is all, you know, the curbside, put it in your backseat, don't talk to anybody kind of thing. Um, and also, um, we had ordered the day before, we live in a home without central air conditioning, and we had a window air conditioner, and it had broken oh, literally the day before. And this is now August 5th. And it doesn't matter where in the United States you live. August is a hot time. <laughs> um, certainly is in Michigan, which is where I live. Um, so definitely did not want to be a, without air conditioning at 39 weeks pregnant. 
Um, so we had ordered one and placed it such that we could go and pick it up from the store. Um, and we figured we would have to go and get it after the appointment um, because um, they hadn't told us yet that it was ready. But we were like, that's fine. You know, so off we went to um, the midwife appointment and went in. I'm 39 weeks now. And the um, nurse or the tech or what have you, she took my blood pressure and it was high. And I was like, okay. And she says, I'm going to come back in 10 minutes just to make sure it's not, you know, just white coat syndrome, anxiousness kind of thing, you know? So I was like, okay. But in the back of my mind, I think in that moment, I knew that this was it. Well, I mean, even being in that setting would raise your blood pressure. Being in the hospital raises your blood pressure. Yeah. It's, yeah. Cause you're automatically kind of feeling like, I'm a patient here because there's something wrong, which raises your blood pressure, you know? Absolutely. But I also knew that there was a lot of reason for my blood pressure to be raised anyway. I'd gained a lot of weight over the very end of my pregnancy on as a result of some of the mental health stuff I was struggling with. My nutrition took a major nosedive. Um, And so there was a lot of reason for these things to kind of be adding up a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that we were kind of talking about a little bit. Um, but so she had left and then the midwife came in and was doing, you know, the typical questions and, um, the nurse came back and it had been maybe 10 or 15 minutes and she took it again. And again, it was high. And so at that point, the midwife said, okay, um, we're going to recommend that you go to triage you know, again, um, and they'll monitor your blood pressure for a little while, but it's very likely, and I want you to kind of have this in your head, it's very likely that if your blood pressure continues to stay high, that we're, you know, going to look at doing an induction. And obviously, um, she knew, because she'd read my birth plan, that that was not my desire. I did not want to be induced. I wanted my baby to come when my baby was ready. So I wasn't very excited about that news. Um, but I said, okay, um, you know, I, I hear you. And I knew from my previous trip to triage that it was possible that we were going to go in and that my blood pressure was going to drop back down to normal levels and, you know, that they were going to send me home. I knew that was possible. But I, I knew both things were possible. So I said, how quickly is, you know, do I need to go? Is this like emergency go there right away? And she said, well, no, I wouldn't say emergency go right away, right away. If, if you need to, you know, run an errand real quick, that's okay. But, you know, don't take all day. This is definitely something we want you to go and do. And I said, you know, okay. So we left the appointment and Ben said, why did you ask her whether we needed to go right away or not? And I said, well, because the last time they sent me to triage, they didn't let me eat food for like six hours and I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. So I need lunch. <clears throat> and he said, oh, OK, I figured it was because of the air conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> Both. <laughs> and I said, wait, what about the air conditioner? He said, well, they'll only hold it at the store for like two or three days before they put it back on the shelf. And I don't want to have a baby and be in the hospital for two or three days and then lose our air conditioner. 
so he insisted that we go pick up the air conditioner um, as we also acquired lunch. And he asked me what I wanted. And I said, well, I would really like a deli sub. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't want that. I want a taco. And I said, oh, I definitely don't want a taco. And in my mind, I'm kind of thinking this is my last meal, like prisoner, like last meal before, you know, kind of thing. And I was like, no, I'm getting exactly what I want. And I said, I guess we're just going to go to two different places to get our lunch then, which we never do that ever. So he at first he didn't believe me. And then I was like, no, really pull over here. I want my deli sandwich and you can go across the street. You can get your taco. <laughs> And so that's what we did. We got our um, air conditioner loaded in the back of the trunk. We got our lunch and we went to the hospital. And um, when we checked in, um, the blood pressure readings did start coming across. And I could tell at this point, because at this point I'd educated myself on what was sort of the normal range versus high. And I'm seeing them each time they're coming across. They check my blood pressure every 20 minutes on an automated machine. And the last time they had fallen back into normal range almost immediately. Only the first reading was high. And then every other one was normal. This time, every single reading is high. And not just like a tiny bit high, notably high. And um, they tried two different cuffs just to make sure that it wasn't a cuff issue and, you know, anything like that. They also tried a couple of times manually taking it versus having the machine do it just to make sure that wasn't an issue as well. And it was pretty consistently clear this is a high blood pressure issue. All right. So I'm kind of um, coming to peace in my mind with the fact that in some way, shape, or form, this baby is coming and we're starting today. Can I ask if it was presented like an option? I would say that it was, but it was also um, strongly urged that I would consider the... Um, risks associated with continuing to wait did they offer any sort of like anything to reduce your blood pressure or were they just thinking oh your baby's term we can deliver it was more along the second case so yeah. they explained that there are high blood pressure medications that are safe to take late in pregnancy but um their feeling was at this point baby is full term and so um, they really felt like the safer option was to go forward with labor rather than um, introducing a medication into the picture, which obviously every medication comes with side effects and mm -hmm. comes with risks as well. So when so, they were going over the risks of staying pregnant, were they going over the risks of induction? Yeah. So um, they basically um, went through the risks of staying pregnant and um, the hemorrhaging and risks of preeclampsia and all those sorts of things. And then they also went over risk of induction um, and they risk of induction. They specifically recommended the fully bulb as the suggested option as opposed to a medical induction. Um, which took a couple of the risks off the table because we're not, again, adding medication into the bloodstream. Um, but basically, the major ones that um, left in my memory were, not surprisingly, like a low birth weight um, and um, trouble just maintaining oxygen to baby um, if they weren't necessarily ready, that can be of concern as well. Mm -hmm. 
as well as they just went over the fact that with an induction also automatically meant that a lot of my other preferences would come off the table. These aren't necessarily risks, but the fact that they were going to have to have constant monitoring on the baby because of those risks um, to make sure that the heart rate was stable. Um, so I was going to have to have an external monitor on me the entire time, um, which I had hoped to avoid. Um, and they had, and that I would have an IV um, in me just in the event that um, they needed to add a medication or anything of that nature. Um, and what else? Well, just in general, like, and then because of those two things, it limits how much movement you can do. Right. Mm -hmm. So Um, I'm sorry, you just, I mean, you just said that in your opinion or your perspective was that they weren't risks, all of those other things that are happening when you have an induction, but I believe that they are. I can see why you would say that. Yeah. I mean, they, they all themselves have their own risks, not to mention the fact that when you start one the rest follow, you know, it's not just an induction, it's an induction with blah, 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 blah. Like it's, it's all of the other implications. Like if you have an amniotomy, when they break your water, you know, risk of cord prolapse and stuff like that. Like it's not just one isolated intervention when you take into account all of the other interventions associated with it. Correct. Right. And that was one of the things that I kind of knew about, but didn't know, I understood that they went together, but I don't know that I fully understood the extent of the domino effect that was coming away when I said, okay. And also something that I think is worth considering that was a part of the decision-making factor is that I live almost an hour away from this hospital. Mm -hmm. So if I go into labor naturally and I'm preeclamptic, I'm not making it to that hospital. I'm ending up at the hospital much closer to home where I have nothing but horror stories from the staff there. So I'm automatically going in with a really bad um, case of anxiety, just about proper care on top of um, facing whatever challenges I have with the labor itself. Um, so that for Kirsten, for myself, was also right. a contributing factor right. in that decision. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that led to um, the recommendation to go forward with a fully bulb induction, um, which for listeners who might not know, basically they place a device um, through the vaginal opening that expands like a balloon. And the idea is that it mimics the baby's head coming down on the cervix, which, um, you know, uh, induces labor. So you're not putting uh, medication into the bloodstream. And then once that the labor begins, the device is removed. Um, so um, I remember sitting there in the triage room and the nurse had told me to take off all my clothes and to put on a hospital gown and that the midwife was going to be coming in shortly and she was vaginal exam. And one of the things that was on my birth plan was that I wanted as few vaginal exams as possible. Like if they weren't necessary, I didn't want them at all. Like I just do not feel comfortable in that scenario whatsoever because of my trauma history. Um, And so I had put that 
onto my birth plan as well as I was very explicit on my birth plan. I have a history of sexual trauma and it's going to be a part of this story. I don't know how yet, but it's going to be. Was, Um, was the, um, who, who, I'm sorry, who determined the necessity of a cervical exam? Was it you? No. So this was just the nurse saying, this is what's going to happen. And I was actually really thrown off by it, but I said, okay. And then she left the room. And so I was looking at my husband going, I'm not sure what to do here. I don't, nobody's really told me this is necessary. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this. And he's like, well, um, at some point here, we know we're about to go into labor and delivery. He said, at some point you need to be in the hospital gown anyway. So let's just, you don't have to take your underwear off if you're not comfortable with that, but why don't we just go ahead and switch you to the gown so you're more comfortable from that perspective. But we'll talk to the midwife when she comes in and see what's going on. As soon as she came in, she immediately says, I'm so sorry that she told that the nurse had told you that we were going to do an exam. We're not doing an exam as not necessary. Um, I know that that is um, not something that you want to do and I'm honoring that. And we are absolutely not doing that. She didn't even try to convince me. Like it was immediately. That's good. And that was a big relief for me because um, one of the things that's um, sort of an attribute of my trauma story is that I um, I was coerced in the circumstances that I was in. And I was made to feel like I was saying yes when actually I couldn't have said yes in those situations. A 14 year old cannot consent, but I was made to believe that I was. So one of the reasons I sought out a doula is because they wanted somebody who was there, who understood the medical aspect of these things, who also knew my desires and could speak up in those circumstances and say, Hey, no, um, Kirsten really should be able to make this decision and she needs all of the information to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, because I was nervous of going into this extremely vulnerable situation again and having yet another person make me feel like I made a decision when I didn't really make a decision. Right. So her, the midwife, Emily coming in and saying that right away, like it was a huge relief to me to kind of have that validation. It was actually, um, one of the first conversations that we had at that point. Um, and so then we had gone into the conversation of, okay, this is what we're suggesting. We talked about the risks and everything, um, and going forward with the, um, induction. And I think that that also helped with the relief of making that decision as well, because I felt, I genuinely felt like this person was on my side and that she was recommending this because it was really in her medical opinion, the safest route to go. Um, she had helped to establish trust in that regard in that way. Um, so we went into the hospital. Um, she was the person who um, placed the Foley bulb and um, they got me all set up with my 57 wires and all these thingamajiggers. Um, it was not pleasant. I did not like having two different Velcro straps across my stomach. I didn't like the IV. Um, I didn't like feeling like I was stuck on the bed. Um, but very shortly thereafter, my doula arrived, um, which just for the record, it's not that she took a while. We didn't tell her to come until we were actually admitted because we're only allowed one support person in the triage area. So it's not that she wasn't well that she took 
you know, a while or anything. But so she arrived and that brought a lot of comfort to me as well. And that was also the point where we told both sets of parents that we were officially in the hospital in labor because we had decided in advance that we weren't going to tell folks until we were admitted because Mm -hmm. we wanted to, um, we just didn't want folks getting worked up if it wasn't actually going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so then it was just also comforting to know that we had both of our families praying for us, um, and all of that. Um, so six o'clock was the shift change, which was very shortly after the Foley Bob was placed and Nora arrived and she's sort of becomes the person overarching the rest of the story because she's then there for 12 hours. And, um, so she came, came in and I had met Nora before. So it was a comfort to see her. She was actually the one that had sent me into triage the first time. Um, but we had met a couple of times. So it was nice to have a familiar face. And she was one of the ladies that I had met with on one occasion. and had talked about my trauma history um, because of some of the anxiety I was experiencing during my pregnancy. And I found her to be a very compassionate person. So I, again, just, there was a sense of like safety, security, and familiarity of just having her with me. Mm -hmm. Um, and fortunately very shortly thereafter, like labor started, I'm doing contractions on my own. Um, and I managed it really, really well by myself. Um, my doula was there. She helped me with breathing techniques and, you know, kind of switched me to a couple of different positions and that all went really well. And then um, I eventually got up to use the restroom. And when I came back, I had um, the nurse had to come and like reconnect some of the um, monitors. And um, she asked me, you know, how are you doing or whatever? And I said, oh, I feel so much relief after using the restroom. And I feel like a lot of the pressure is gone. And she said, hmm, okay, well, I'm glad you're feeling better. And she shared that with the midwife. And at that point, you know, Nora came back and she said, I'm a little bit concerned that um, the Foley bulb might have um, fallen out while you were using the restroom and maybe you didn't realize it or had at least like dislodged in place and that you're not far enough along for it to have fallen out. Like it, it, it just hadn't been very long. It had only been in place for about an hour. And so she said, um, given that, um, can we look at doing an exam so I can um, retrieve the Foley bulb if it is in fact, um, you know, out? And then furthermore, just identifying whether or not we have progressed at all. Um, Because if we have, then I won't have to touch it again and we'll be all good. But if we haven't, then I, you know, we do feel it would be prudent to to put it back in. And so, um, we talked about it. Um, my husband and my doula and I, we decided, okay, let's go ahead and do that check so that, cause it was basically like, if we do this, then we don't have to keep checking. Like we don't have to look anymore cause we'll just know labor's going and we're good to go. And so I decided, okay, that's fine. And plus then I was going to have this thing out of my vagina, which who wants to have extra stuff in your vagina? Not me. I like to keep stuff in there sometimes. sometimes Sometimes. (laughs) so um anyway so she went ahead and checked and um 
Uh, in fact, the Foley bulb had fallen out of place. And so she obviously removed it. And then when she did the check, I was like four centimeters dilated and she was so excited. She's like, Kirsten, this is fantastic. She's like, we don't need to put anything back in. We don't need to do anything. I'm watching you handle your contractions. Like you're doing awesome. Like, this is great. You know, no more touching necessary. Like we're out. Like, this is awesome. And I was like, oh God, thank God. And then I was thinking to myself, I didn't want to put a, one of the other reasons they didn't want a lot of checks is because I didn't want to put a lot of stock in this whole, like, how many centimeters are you? Because mm-hmm. I had read a lot of things in advance that that's not always the greatest indicator of whether or not labor is necessarily progressing. Right. And so I didn't want to get too hung up on it. So I tried to just kind of dismiss that from my mind and just go with, I'm moving through my contractions. I've got this, like we're golden. And so over the course of the next several hours, um, the contractions like increased in both intensity and timing and I continued to manage them pretty well. It was a little frustrating because I felt a little bit stuck in the bed because of all of the wires and monitors, but overall I was doing all right. So if the Foley bulb was out, you still had to, you were still hooked up on everything? Yeah, because they had the, um, IV already connected to me. So they had to keep the IV um, well, they ha- no, they had removed it, so it wasn't attached. It was just the catheter was in, but they did have the baby's heart rate being monitored with an external um, monitor. Right. Um. So nothing is in me anymore, if that makes yeah. sense. But I did have this sort of like big Velcro strap across my tummy. Um. And a couple of times I had um asked if we could try going laboring for a little while where I wouldn't necessarily be, I, you know, able to be attached to the monitor. And they were like, okay, we can try that. And like, I would try that for a while to see if it would like ease things. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they were like, no, you must stay in bed. You're stuck here. Um, but, um, and then they would just come by like, okay, it's been, you know, um, a little while. Let's just check and make sure baby's doing well. And they would put the monitor back on. And unfortunately, pretty much every single time, we tried to labor in a position that felt more comfortable. The monitor was showing baby's heart rate dropping considerably. And so eventually I just kind of decided that like, okay, there's no point in constantly trying all these different things when all of them are resulting in baby's heart rate is dropping. And so I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this in the bed left and right, because that seems to be the only thing that's working because Everything else is causing the baby's heart rate to drop. And obviously that's an issue. So um, on we went. And actually the contraction started to die down. Um, they started to diminish in both intensity and frequency. Um, and so this was hours later. I'm um, probably like midnight or so. So I've been in labor for about six hours at that point. Um, and the I actually at one point had sent um my doula home I said go and get some rest because apparently we're going to be doing this for a while and I'm doing just fine and I would rather have you rested so that we when we get to the point where we're having the baby like you're 100 percent um and she'd been gone for about an hour hour and a half when the midwife came back and she was basically like okay like your contractions have basically like almost completely petered out like you're almost not even contracting anymore um and she was concerned that that meant that labor had completely stalled 
And um, she said, I want to ask you to consider um, introducing Pitocin to um, continue helping with labor progressing. And I was like, oh, heck no, 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 no. I want no part of that. I looked, I read all about Pitocin before. And honestly, the number one thing that I was worried about regarding Pitocin of all of the risks that come with it, the number one thing um, was the fact that I already have PTSD and I'd read a lot of things that indicated that Pitocin increases your risk for postpartum mood disorders. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, having PTSD also increases your odds of having postpartum mood disorders. Mm -hmm. I did not want to add any more to that pile. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. I, I, I really don't want to hate having a baby. Like I want to look at my child and be happy and love them. And I, I don't want to go through that. And she said, you know, okay, I, I understand your concerns. Um, she said, you know, to consider that, um, you know, it's, it's, it is a risk. Yes. But here are the risks associated with, you know, continuing to, um, wait. Um, and specifically she said that probably what will happen is if labor doesn't progress on its own, then we are going to have to reconsider like completely starting labor over again. Um, and at that point, because I've already, um, dilated some, um, they won't be able to use the Foley bulb again. And now they're going to have to consider medical options instead. Um, like, uh, medications. And so I was like, okay, I definitely don't want that. So I said, let me think about it. I, I'm really, really not excited about that, but I will think about it. And she said, okay, I'm going to come back in about an hour and we can discuss it. And maybe something will have changed by then too. And that was something where I was really grateful for my doula in those prep sessions, because that was one of the tools she gave me. She said, as we're going through this process, one of the questions to ask is what happens if we wait an hour? And, um, you know, can we have this decision again in an hour or is this an urgent decision? No, we need to make it now. And so I was really grateful for that. And so uh, we called her back and she came back to the hospital and I reviewed it with her and we had a pretty lengthy discussion about it. And one of the things that, um, we talked about was the fact that sort of the combat is to is to increase your oxytocin levels, to do everything you can to create this lovey, um, romantic, like happy vibe as much as possible. And I remember looking at Josie and going, how the heck are we going to do that in a hospital room? I mean, I've got things attached to my stomach. There's a hole poking out of my hand. Like, what about this feels lovey? <laughs> Nothing. Um, and she said, I, I understand why you feel that way. I was a little salty at that point, too. So that's part of why I was being so sassy. Um, but, um, you know, she said, but I, I think we can do that. And so when the midwife came back, I said, OK, um, at that at that point, I basically hadn't felt a single contraction since she'd left the room. And so I'm pretty understanding at that point, like an hour has passed. I'm not feeling contractions like nobody needs to look at my cervix to tell me or I'm not actively in labor. And um, so she came back and I said, what's the lowest setting that you can do? Like, I mean, like, I barely want to feel it. The lowest, absolute lowest setting. And she I'm said, gonna, 
Sorry, guys. I'm going to interrupt for a second. I think my husband's going to bring me the baby. I don't mind just continuing while I nurse him, though. I just wanted to let you guys know. And I'll I'll edit that that little part out. I'll just Not a problem. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so anyway, I said, okay, we can do the Pitocin, but only at its absolute lowest setting possible. And we're going to do everything we can to... Um, you know, like my like my doula had said, kind of create this lovey environment to just increase my own oxytocin levels. Um, so they went ahead and hooked up my IV and put me on the lowest setting, which I don't know what the number is for that, but um, they started that and the contractions came back. I was like, okay, I got this. And um, so Josie says why don't you tell me about how you and Benjamin met and fell in love? And I was like, okay, at this point you can kind of tell, I enjoy telling stories. So that's what we did. And we spent like a good two hours, you know, reminiscing and talking about, you know, our love story, which was very effective in the whole, um, you know, feel good, lovey um, atmosphere. That was the goal. Um, and I was moving through the contractions fairly well. Um, but then every hour they were also checking my blood pressure and they were growing concerned that my blood pressure was increasing. Um, and that baby's blood pressure kept going through these little dips. And so at this point they're starting to feel like, okay, um, we need to know how close we are to having this baby because, there's a lot of um, scary things stacking up right now. And so at that point, this is the first time that they've, uh, that they really implore me to consider a vaginal check so that they can get an idea of like how close we are to having this baby. And um, at this point, it was a lot more of an urgent presentation because look, we've got your high blood pressure. Babies is low, um, you know, kind of thing. And I was like, really hesitant, but, you know, I had Josie and Ben there and I said, okay, like, that's fine. Um, and I, I wasn't thrilled about it, but I went ahead and like sort of tolerated it. Um, and she goes to do the check and I don't know why my brain decided this, but, um, for some reason I thought she was putting her hand in the wrong place on my body. And I just completely freak out. Um, panic sets in instantaneously. As a person with PTSD, I recognize what panic feels like. It is not um, worry. It's not discomfort. It is very real. It absolutely affects my heart rate. It affects how I feel in my body. And um, I was actually really proud of myself because I said, stop, which I never do in those moments. And I've never done in all of my life of all of the trauma I've been through. I almost never actually say, stop. I usually just lay there and let it happen, but I didn't. And she of course stopped. And in that moment, she said something that I will probably never forget. She said, Kirsten, nobody is going to do anything to you that you don't want to have happen to you. You are the person who's in control right now. If you do not want me to do this, I am not going to do this. 
we will have your baby in whatever way this baby needs to get here. You're in control. And I just cried. I mean, I bawled tears. And I said, okay, I'm going to need a minute. And I just cried, cried. <laughs> was really overwhelmed with the whole thing. And um, eventually um, I said, okay, you know, um, let's just find out where we're at. You can go ahead and do it again. And um, let her go ahead with the exam. And she came out and she says, okay, we're eight centimeters. This is awesome. We're making tons of progress. Um, we're getting really, really close. Um, and so um, off she went. And, you know, we kept going. And over the course of the next couple of hours, the contractions intensified. And I started getting really, really frustrated with the fact that every time I would try to turn into a position that was more comfortable, the baby's heart rate would drop. And the nurse would say, I'm sorry. I um, And it was just like clockwork. Like even the nurse is not in the room, you know, and I would turn and, you know, try something different. And um, immediately within like 30 seconds, the nurse is in the room saying, I'm sorry, baby's heart rate's dropped. Like, that's why she's coming in is because she's seeing it on the monitor. And um, it was getting really frustrating. And because of the Pitocin, the contractions were now suddenly much more difficult to tolerate. They were extremely sharp um, as opposed to um, the contractions I'd had before they'd added the medication. And so I had um, just got, I was starting to get really, really frustrated and um eventually um right about five in the clock in the morning um so at that point i'd been in labor for about 11 hours um the nurse was there for the umpteenth time telling me no i need you to go back the other way you know your baby needs you to move over um and i finally just said i i can't i can't tolerate it anymore like i i can't keep doing this and um I had talked to my doula in advance about the pain option management options I wanted to consider and the order in which I wanted to do them. And so she offered sort of the lowest tier option, which I've already forgotten what it was. Um, and I basically said, it's a waste of time. Like just give me an epidural so I can be done. The whole reason I didn't want an epidural was because I didn't want to be stuck in bed, unable to move. And at this point, I'm stuck in bed, unable to move. So I'd, if I'm going to be stuck in bed, unable to move, then I might as well not be in suffering. And um, Ben was a little hesitant because we had definitely had said that we didn't want an epidural. And so he was like, can, can we just think about it for a minute? And I was like, I and I'm doing all of this in between contractions in like 30 second increments, maybe 60 second increments. And um. I was very frustrated in trying to make the decision. And um, all of a sudden, um, the midwife says, turn off the Pitocin. And so the midwife or the nurse stopped the drip on the Pitocin. And within like a minute or two, all of a sudden, the contractions were tolerable. And all of a sudden, like, I like, felt like sane in my own body again. And I was like, wow, okay, now I can think clearly. And 
she said, uh, and so I turned and I looked at my husband to have this conversation about the epidural. And he said, are you sure this is what you want? Like, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. It makes no difference to me. I want you safe and healthy and feeling in control. And I said, honestly, I just feel really stuck. Like whatever it is with this baby, he can't move. I, I can't move or she, we didn't know at that point. And so I said, I, I just, if they're going to turn that thing back on, like, I don't want to feel it anymore. I just, I can't do it. And he said, okay, hon, like, if that's what you want to do, then that's fine. And so they called in the anesthesiologist and, um, he got me hooked up for the epidural and the, um, anesthesiologist was dreadful. He didn't tell me a single thing that he was doing to me. He just said, sit there and don't move. And an epidural is an extremely uncomfortable process. They are putting a needle into your back and then inserting a medication and you can literally feel it moving through your spine. There is no words to describe the discomfort that that feels like. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't prepared for it. Nobody told me what it was going to feel like. Nobody told me you're going to feel a pinch now or like, you know, anything like that. So and because they didn't tell you any of that, I'm assuming they didn't go over any of the risks of an epidural. They, we had gone over the risks of an epidural um, during my appointments before. So I was already well aware of that and um, in advance. And when by the time we went to go over it, um, I literally just said, I don't want to hear about it. Just do it. And they said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm done. And I said, and they said, okay. So that's kind of how the conversation had gone. I was pretty angry at that point. Um, so I wasn't necessarily making super sound judgment calls. Um, but yeah, so I was sitting there like frozen like a statue, terrified out of my mind of whatever, of this thing going wrong, because there are a lot of really scary stories out there about the, about it going wrong. Right. And um, my husband is just watching me and it's all written on my face. And that for him was the turning point in the entire story. That for him was the moment where it went from, okay, this isn't what we were expecting, but we can do this to, oh my goodness, this is terrifying. This is absolutely like life altering, terrifying. And he felt like completely out of control and like I was in pain and he couldn't do anything about it and that he was supposed to say something and he didn't feel like he knew what to say. And it was really overwhelming for him. I didn't find out about that moment for several days. It wasn't until after we were home, baby in hand, that um, he finally told me what that was like watching that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually it affected him so intensely that as soon as the epidural was in place, I lay down and tried to go to sleep and, um, he decided to go and grab a snack for himself, which I was fine with. Um, but especially cause the doula was in the room. Um, but instead of actually going and getting a snack, he walked into the nearest public restroom and he just collapsed on the floor and cried. And my husband doesn't do that. Like he's cried, like he can count on one hand the number of times in his life, his, you know, not toddler life, but, you know, mature life that he cried. Okay. He was so overwhelmed by everything that was happening. 
And he felt like he didn't have anybody that he could talk to because it was his job to be the rock. And so he got his snack and his pop and he came back in trying as hard as he could to be that even while in an immense amount of pain himself emotionally. And again, I didn't know that at the time. He told me this story days later. Um, so after they put the epidural in, um, the midwives changed shifts and Barb takes over. And I'd never met Barb because she's only at the hospital. But, you know, Nora says she's lovely and she'll take great care of me. And I said, okay, I'm going to sleep. And um, I was very frustrated because they kept waking me up and trying to turn me over. And they kept saying, your baby needs you to move. Your baby needs you to move. And I was irritated because I was exhausted. At this point, I can't feel the contractions. So I'm not in pain. But they're saying that the whole point of, um, you know, the epidural was so that I could finally relax and things could finish. And I was like, you keep like, I can't actually relax if you keep waking me up. It's, I was very irritated. And um, after about an hour of that, um, the, um, the epidural got placed around... 6.30 or so. Um, and so it was about 8 o'clock in the morning. So a little, little more than an hour. But anyway, it's about 8 o'clock in the morning. And Barb um, comes back. And at this point, she's like, here, so I need you to be awake. We need to have a conversation. And I'm like, okay. I'm trying to sit up, get myself oriented. At this point, I've got maybe 45 minutes of broken sleep. Um, and she says, um, your baby's heart rate keeps dropping. We don't know why. Um, and we really think that we need to um, break your water and put in an internal monitor. So can I ask about the heart rate? Was it going like up and down and up and down and up and down? Or was it, are they saying that it was steadily declining? It was going um, up and down. So whenever I would be, so it was steadily declining based on where I was located and then they would turn me and then the heart rate would return to normal and then it would go back down again. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Cause it's normal for it to drop with contractions. Right. But it wasn't necessarily matching the contractions was the, um, concern. Okay. Um, so cause they weren't only asking me to move every 20 or 30 minutes. And I was having contractions every one or two minutes. Um, so it was like steadily getting lower and lower and lower before they were like, okay, try to rotate the other way. And then it would come back to a normal range. Okay, we're doing all right for a while. And it was getting suddenly lower and lower and lower and lower. Um, and at that point, I looked at her and like, the disappointment clearly showed on my face. And she, um, she said, okay, I can see the discouragement. Cause I, I literally, I didn't even ask her. I didn't ask what the risks were. Cause I already knew I didn't care. I was irritated. And I said, okay, fine, whatever. 
And she said, okay, I can see a lot of discouragement here. Can we talk about that for a second? And I just looked at her and said, you might as well just do a C-section because at this point you have taken my entire birth plan and flipped every single one of my decisions. I didn't want any of this. So if you're going to take those two things from me too, you might as well just take me into surgery because at this point, none of this birth is what I wanted. Right. And, um, she said, okay, I understand why you feel that way. Um, please know that every single thing we're doing is with the intent to have a safe vaginal delivery to avoid having surgery. Do you believe that? I did. Do you believe it now? Yeah, I think so. I don't think they wanted me to have a surgery. I think inherently midwives don't want that for their patients. But it was still really difficult to be living through it. Because I want to ask, if that's not the intention, are they or are you unaware of what leads to a C-section? I think they were aware of it because every single one of the things that we went through, it, it was on the list of possible risks that could come as a result of the decision. Having a induction a C-section becomes one of the risks. Right. Having Pitocin, right. a C-section becomes one of the risks. Breaking your water beco like, becomes right. one of the risks. And I feel like they just felt like they'd had enough experiences where that's not what happened. And so that's the prayer that they were working on. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, I mean, if their intention or your intention is not to, or it is to avoid a C-section, then it would track that there would be steps taken to actively avoid that. Right. But I also understand if their desire and your desire is to avoid something like preeclampsia. Right. Yeah. It was complicated. It was really overwhelming. And in that moment, um, I wasn't really thinking clearly at that point. And I, you know, just said, if that's what you feel like you have to do, then at this point, I'm just going to trust you because I don't know anymore. Like, I just, I don't know how to make the decisions on my own. And um. I closed my eyes and the next thing I knew, the midwife is talking to the nurse and directing her to do something across the room. And the nurse is saying, is clarifying what she wants. Are you sure? This is it? Yes, that's the button. I didn't understand what it was, but by the time I could have the coherent thought to ask what was happening, the door to the room flies open, eight people walk in the room, 
surround my bed and one of them in a really urgent voice says, my name is Dr. Menon and we're about to proceed with an emergency C-section. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. You can find us on Instagram at fiat.podcast. And please leave us a rate and review, and we'll see you next week. Bye.